Our call to worship this morning comes from the letter to the church at Colossae. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. And now we come to God with our prayers of approach, which we will round up by joining together in the Lord's Prayer. Please say the Lord's Prayer in whatever is your own first language and in whatever form is familiar to you. We enjoy the diversity and variety. If you're not sure of the words, there will be a version on the screen. So let's pray together. God of all places and all times, God of this place and this time, we gather in the name of Christ to offer you our worship and praise. The scriptures name you as sovereign or Lord. Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. Language of power and authority like this doesn't always sit so easily with us. We prefer instead more comfortable language of family relationships. And yet, on this day, when we are perhaps more than usually alert to humanly instituted powers, the parliaments and council chambers of these islands and their potential for good or ill it is right to remind ourselves that all authority is ultimately accountable to your own and that in the end, it is your kingdom of peace, your renewed creation to which we aspire. In the stillness, we open our hearts to you, identifying and naming the emotions we feel being aware that however we feel, others around us may be feeling different. We hold fast to the truth that in Christ, all humanly defined distinctions ultimately disappear. That we are all part of one body, Christ's body. And that it is through us and others like us that your kingdom will find expression. God of this place and this time. God of all places and all times. Be with us now as we gather together in the words Jesus taught his followers. Saying, Our Father... Who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on 
temptation, but deliver us from evil. The mind is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. In the last couple of weeks leading up to the general election, we used some material from the Joint Public Issues Group of the Church of Scotland, Methodist, United Reformed and Baptist Churches, which I think, for me anyway, and for some others, was quite helpful as we focused on issues of truth, justice, peace and well-being. Alongside that, I was reading a book by a chap called Andy Flanagan, who is part of an organisation called Christians in Politics, which is a cross-party network of Christians who are active in politics. There are Conservative Christians, Labour Christians, Social Democrat Christians, Scottish Nationalist Christians, Green Christians, Independent Christians, all of whom are part of this group. And he wrote this book, which is a really easy read, which was as well, because I was fitting it in around everything else. Uh, But it seems to have some useful things to say to us as we perhaps move on from the voting that happened last week and the results of that, whatever we may make of them. So I'm going to show you a short video clip that was created by Andy Flanagan of Christians in Politics to help us start our thinking this morning. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. All things means all of creation. God's desire is for every sphere of culture to be transformed. Business, media, education, arts, religion, family, and even politics. But most of our energy, time, and resources as the church seem to be invested only in the religious sphere. We're training people to be better worship leaders, better preachers, and better small group leaders. But not so much of our time is spent training people to be better teachers, better journalists, or politicians. In fact, we may only be impacting one-seventh of culture. These spheres are transformed by the presence of prayerful, trained-up believers within them. For too long, as Christians, we've been shouting from the sidelines rather than getting on the pitch. It's easy to send an email or a postcard. It's harder to build relationships and work with those we may not necessarily agree with. In politics, decisions are made by those who show up. We have a choice as believers in the UK. Are we going to spend the next few years just commentating and complaining about the state of our country? Or are we going to follow the biblical precedent of people like Joseph, Esther and Daniel, who served in the midst of regimes that make present-day politics look positively virtuous? Surely it's time for Christians to show up. We can just follow, or we can serve and lead Your vote could just be the start of you making decisions, not the end. 
So why don't you join a political party or a campaign or connect with your local councillors or MP? And above all, pray. Rather than shouting from a distance, you could be whispering from up close. We will see God's will be done and his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. The question is, will we be part of making it happen? Show up. Jesus did. reading this morning is from the first letter of John chapter 5 verses 1 to 6. First John chapter 5 starting at the first verse. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Messiah is a child of God and whoever loves a father loves his child also. This is how we know that we love God's children. It is by loving God and obeying his commands. For our love of God means that we obey his commands. And his commands are not too hard for us, because every child of God is able to defeat the world. And we win the victory over the world by means of our faith. Who can defeat the world? Only the person who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus Christ is the one who came with the water of his baptism and the blood of his death. He came not only with the water, but with both the water and the blood. And the Spirit himself testifies that this is true, because the Spirit is truth. And then from John's Gospel, chapter 15, starting at verse 9. John 15, verse 9. I love you just as the Father loves me. Remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My commandment is this. Love one another just as I love you. The greatest love a person can have for his friends is to give his life for them. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants any longer, because servants do not know what their master is doing. Instead, I call you friends, because I have told you everything I have heard from my father. You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you to go and bear much fruit, the kind of fruit that endures. And so the father will give you whatever you ask of him in my name. This, then, is what I command you. Love one another. I think to call what I'm going to share a sermon is probably stretching credibility a little bit. It's more of a reflection in which I'm trying to pull together some of the things that I've been reading and reflecting on in the last couple of weeks with some thoughts that emerge from the two readings we've just heard, which are the lectionary readings set for today. And all of that in the light of the fact that we have, just a couple of days ago, voted in the 2015 UK-wide general election. And I don't know how anybody's feeling about that this morning. I suspect there will be a variety of feelings And I don't know how anybody voted, and I don't want to know how many voted, how anybody voted, 
though I am fairly um, confident that we voted in a variety of ways, we have all of us made a choice this morning to come together as people who seek to follow Jesus in a complicated and confusing world. We have chosen to show up, to come to church rather than to stay at home and read the papers or go out somewhere for the day. Our presence here means that however we feel and however we voted, we value being part of this diverse group of people and we seek to go forward together, recognising that there is something bigger than all of that of which we are a part. I've mentioned over the last couple of weeks that I have had some trepidation in preaching around the general election, and that has been true, and it still is this morning. Last autumn, we felt the way we felt, and we reacted the way we reacted, and it wasn't entirely a happy time for any of us. I guess there are some people this morning who are feeling it's all still too raw, and there is stuff they still need to process, as well as others who think we really need to be working out where we're going next. So with that in mind, let's just try and be kind to ourselves and to each other. It's an interesting phrase, those who show up, which um, was the title of the book that um, was used. just realised why I didn't get the slide I was expecting. The world is run by those who show up, um, attributed to somebody called Ron Neighbouring, I don't know who that is. I just googled the phrase and looked to see what came up. Actually, I ducked up go the phrase because they don't track you quite as much. Uh, decisions are made by those who show up, attributed to Aaron Sorkin. On the little book, uh, the back of the little book, it says this at the top: "Time to get involved." From food banks to debt counselling. From street pastors to soup vans, the church is doing an amazing job treating the victims of a flawed system. But it's never going to be enough. Unless we also get involved in the decision-making process. Because, as Bart Simpson once famously discovered, the vote is won and history is made by those who show up. Where on earth does Bart Simpson fit in with any of this? I must admit, I'm not a particularly great Simpsons fan. I enjoy it when I see it, and I think it makes some good points. Uh, But it's not a a thing I watch regularly. Does anybody watch The Simpsons here? Okay, I'm just one person, I think. I'm just one or two. Just as well, then, I, I, I thought I'd explain where he gets this idea from. There is an episode of The Simpsons called Lisa's Substitute, and you can look for that on YouTube later on. And in that, there is a subplot that involves Bart. This is Bart on the screen. An election is to be held for the class president, and two candidates emerge. One is the outstanding student and, frankly, the class nerd, one Martin Prince, who is nominated by the the teacher, Mrs. Crabapple, and then there is Bart, who is nominated by his friends. And they have a kind of leadership debate vote to be before the vote happens. And Bart tells all sorts of jokes and, and everybody loves him and he's, oh yeah, Bart, fantastic, fantastic. 
And then voting day comes. And Bart is so confident that he's going to be elected after that amazing experience. Actually, he doesn't bother to go and vote for himself. And neither does the, the people who nominated him. And in fact, neither does anybody else because they're absolutely convinced that Bart is going to get in, so who needs their vote? In fact, only two people vote. And when the result is revealed, Bart has no votes and Martin has two votes. One from himself and presumably one from the person who nominated him apart from the teacher. And so he wins. The point isn't so much who won that election and whether or not Bart would have been a good class president. The point is, you have to show up, you have to take part if you're going to make a difference. Those who get involved are the ones who can shape the future. Those who, for whatever reason, opt out can't make a difference. You should have a piece of paper on your chair which has got a picture of Andy Flanagan's um, spheres on it. Seven spheres, which I did have on the screen, but it's just not going to play, so we're not going to be able to show you that on there. Seven spheres um, of what he calls culture, which include the church as one of them, and um, education, the arts business, politics, and so on. And what he says, as you saw in the film clip, is a real sense that the church focuses itself almost solely in the religious sphere. We are collectively, not necessarily us as a particular congregation, good at training up people to be worship leaders, ministers, musicians, small group leaders, Sunday school teachers, that kind of thing. But we largely don't take much notice of the other six spheres. And although he focuses in the political sphere because that is his interest, the same kind of questions could be asked about the other spheres. How, if at all, are we as the church equipping those whose primary calling is to be a parent or a teacher or a dancer, or a physicist, or a broadcaster, or a doctor, or whatever it might be? To what extent does what we do on a Sunday or in a midweek meeting relate to the real world out there? Is there a danger that we're so heavenly-minded we're no earthly use? And is there also a danger that we're so socially-minded that we forget the spiritual. There's a balance somewhere between those two. Whilst recognising the role of the prophets and the prophetic role of the church to identify and name injustice or sin, Flanagan is very much aware of a potential cop-out that arises when we just send a few postcards or sign a few online petitions. That can make us feel quite good about ourselves, but only takes a few moments of our time and perhaps doesn't affect us day to day. What is needed, he says, is Christians who will show up at the grassroots level of social and political engagement. People who will join political parties of whatever colour they feel most aligned to. Because there is no perfect political party and most people who join them don't agree with everything their party stands for. 
But it needs people who will sit through tedious business meetings. That's what he says in there. Tedious business meetings in drafty halls. People who are willing to research the issues and present their findings to committees. People who won't just show up, but people who will stand up and be counted. People who will seek election as local councillors, as MSPs, MPs, MEPs, or whatever it might be. The book's an easy read, but the message perhaps is not so easy. He actually talks about Christians going out with those in their churches who have put themselves up as candidates and supporting them in their canvassing, even if it's not the party you happen to align yourself with. Now, there's a challenge for all of us, isn't it? According to Flanagan, there are Christians in almost every political party, and he certainly includes stories from the Scottish Nationalists, Conservative, Labour and Liberal Democrats. Agreeing to disagree on some issues or approaches, what unites them is their faith and their commitment to transforming society in line with the values of the kingdom of God. They pray with and for each other. They seek to influence their own parties. They draw on the huge knowledge base of Christians and other people of faith and goodwill. And they make a difference. You can read examples in the book or if you go online to Christians in politics. Not necessarily the huge policy decisions, but sometimes the small, almost unseen adjustments that actually result in something more humane and just than would otherwise be possible. There's one example of a woman who um, wanted, she felt that those who were on the minimum wage shouldn't pay tax and that the tax threshold should be set above the amount that anybody on the minimum wage is paid. And she quietly worked away from that. And although she didn't quite achieve it, the £10,000 threshold was a result of her persistent, quiet background work. You won't see her name up in lights anywhere. And maybe she didn't quite get all she wanted, but she stuck at it. Many or most of us won't feel a great sense to an overtly party political sphere of engagement. But we shouldn't be under any illusion that politics impacts all the other spheres. The arts, media, education, business and yes, even family life. Whatever sphere it is, there's a need for Christians to show up and get stuck in. Making the little differences being salt and light. The extract we heard from the first letter of John refers to those who obey the commandments of God conquering the world. Now that's slightly troubling as an image until we realise that the commands of God are centred on love and not on power. So perhaps what it's saying is that those who live under the rule of love will eventually have authority in the whole earth. And that is a promise not just of... It's not a promise of overcoming or ousting those who oppose us, but rather it's a promise of drawing into that embrace of divine love and transformation that finds expression in our everyday love for our neighbour. And, if we take Jesus' words seriously, our love for our enemies... Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. It's never easy, this Christian stuff. Rather than an imposed regime, perhaps it's this transformative power of messy engagement, 
Maybe it's a call to work with people whose values and motivations are not the same as our own. Maybe it's about vision and about a call to action. In John 15, Jesus gives his closest friends what he calls a new commandment, that they love one another as he's loved them. This mutual love that transcends differences of opinion or race or politics or any other label you care to use will make his followers stand out from the crowd. Or, if you want to play around with the words a little bit, they will show up brightly among the dark, murky sameness of a worldview that's not centred in love. A glimmer of hope and a different vision a contagious lifestyle that changes whatever it touches. It sounds quite attractive. And then Jesus says, well, greater love has no one than to lay down their life for their friends. We usually hear these words either in a reflection on military conflict or in a direct link to the events of Calvary because they're very uncomfortable words. Greater love has no one than to lay down their life for their friends. But what if we said, actually, greater love has no one than to employ their time, their energy, and their gifts for others? That's a form of laying down your life, isn't it? And not just for your friends, the people you like and the people who like you, but for those we find it difficult to like those who disagree with us, those even who oppose us? What if we dared to believe, really, really dared to believe, that love is the greatest gift of God? What if we really believe that love is stronger than hate, stronger than evil, stronger than sin? If we really believe that one day, ultimately, love will win? What if we could bring that belief into our churches and allow it to equip us to go out into those other spheres of life of which we are all a part and share its power there? What if we tore that corner off and tore the corners off that corner and shared them out and and multiplied that love, spreading it wider and wider? What might it mean to be a scientist or an artist whose prime motivation is love or a teacher or an architect or a neighbour or a friend. Every week when we say the Lord's Prayer, we pray for the coming of God's kingdom. And by faith, we believe that that will come to pass. I guess the question we're left with is not... Do I or do I not like the shape of the UK government that's just been elected? But rather, what part am I going to play in the here and now to influence the society of which I'm part in order that it might become more like the kingdom of God? Dear friends, let us pray. God, our Father, hear our prayers. 
We pray for the disenfranchised of our world. We ourselves have just experienced the arguments and tensions of an election, the outcome of which will affect our lives for several years. Some are happy at the result, others are not, but generally all accept the judgment of the ballot box. The process itself was conducted in comparative peace and dignity. Thanks be to God, we live in a country where this is the accepted norm. We pray, however, for those parts of the world where such decisions are governed by violence and intimidation and guns. Countries where, if the ballot boxes give an unwanted result, then it is ignored and the will of the people is not accepted. We pray, Lord, that you give strength to those who continue to fight for political justice and refuse to accept tyranny. They turn up. We pray for the suffering of our world, in particular today those in Nepal, whose lives have been destroyed by a cataclysmic earthquake. Thanks be to God, we live in a country where if a disaster happens, all resources are mobilised immediately to alleviate the effects of the disaster. Not all countries are so fortunate. Vast sums of money, medical supplies, food, clothing and shelter have been raised, collected, air freighted to Nepal, but on arrival, there have been life-threatening delays in getting what is necessary to the people and places concerned. We pray, Lord, that you open the minds of officials to the realisation that every second's delay in properly distributing this aid means not only lives lost, hopes dashed, but they will be accountable to world opinion and to you. We pray for the sick and the elderly of our world, the world at large and the world close to home. Thanks be to God, we live in a country with a flawed but much-valued health service. We think of the people we know, some battling disease, some battling the effects of ageing, which forces them to live in care homes, whilst yearning for the homes they created with loved ones. We pray, Lord, that you bless the care workers who look after the sick and the elderly with such compassion and patience. We pray that you comfort relatives who feel guilty because they can no longer look after their loved ones themselves. We pray that you ease the fears and sadness of those torn from the homes they loved, sometimes not understanding why the move was necessary. Lord, we pray that your love of all loves permeates everyone in the care and nursing professions. 
Finally, Lord, we pray for ourselves, for this congregation which, though small, thinks big. We dream and work towards serving our community with better facilities in the hope of spreading your word by our example. We pray for your encouragement in our endeavours. Truly, we believe that all people who on earth do dwell are affected and saddened alike by the natural disasters, military conflicts, political injustices, social injustices, diseases of body and declining powers of the elderly. But we pray that because we all belong to you, who is love personified, that you will guide and help us to unite in compassionate help in whatever way we can. All this we ask humbly in the name of your wonderful Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. When you go home, can I invite you to take with you the little slip of paper that was on your seat um, relating to the service today? Um, There are some questions to continue to ponder. There are also some websites to various Christian political organisations that might be of interest to you. And so we pray, God of all places, as we go from this place, may we be encircled by your love and generous in the sharing of that love with others so that your kingdom may grow day by day, here and everywhere.